second lecture today, I want to kind of bring home to us what a cruciform Christological reading of the book of Joshua will mean for us. And I suspect some of the things I say might be a little bit provocative, but I hope in a good way. So let me proceed. <clears throat> In 2016, that is prior to undertaking the Joshua Commentary, I published a chapter contribution on the powers and principalities in the book Life Amid the Principalities, Identifying, Understanding, and Engaging Creative Fallen and Disarmed Powers Today. I wrote in that chapter that the biblical seat of the doctrine is found in the letter to the Ephesians. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's in Ephesians 6.12. In this contribution in 2016, I argued against uh, the outstanding New Testament theologian N.T. Wright, against his thesis that the Apostle Paul's meaning lies between the lines, coded in a language which he, Tom Wright, has unlocked disguising, the apostle disguising his political attack on Roman imperialism with mythological language such as exhibited in the Ephesians text I just read. I argued against that thesis and I found help in this argument from the impressive uh, scholar also from the United Kingdom John Barclay. I, by the way, I strongly recommend that you look up John Barclay and read his New Testament uh, work. He voiced a number of important objections to N.T. Wright's interpretation of Paul's theology as a coded political attack on Romans, Roman imperialism. First, reducing Paul's demonology to political imperialism is clumsy, not least of all because it merely flips upside down imperial values and so remains captive to the same ideological system of, of, of contending domination between the powers that be and the powers that would be. They're both trapped in the same um, scheme of values that top dog position belongs to the one who succeeds in dominating. Number two, that the author of Romans 13 in any case interprets the empire as a field of human reality crisscrossed and contested like all the other fields of human reality by the opposing powers of the flesh and the spirit, thus being subject 
to mysterious powers far greater than themselves in the battle inaugurated by the gospel. Third, that the political product of the disruptive and redemptive power of divine grace in Christ is the creation and empowerment of new communities of social and therefore broadly political significance, what I call the beloved community as a proper understanding of the fruit of the gospel. And for you all, pastors and people, the immediate uh, social and therefore broadly political significance of caring communities of Christ's people at work in the world. Now, one might say in general that N.T. Wright's reading of Paul in the light of Hebrew scripture, according to a salvation history scheme stressing continuity, thinks of Joshua's war against the Canaanite city-states as simply continued in the Gospels' war against Roman imperialism. All the foregoing corrections to N.T. Wright's overstated claims are important for the proper understanding of the politics of the Apostles' apocalyptic gospel. More broadly, these corrections correct contemporary simplistic and unthinking demonization of empire when the tragic history of the 20th century witnessed the devastating rise of nationalisms out of the decaying Western empires, including the Ottoman Empire. I call this unthinking because it refuses to recognize the virtues of empire as well as its vices. The virtues of empire are to form multicultural and cosmopolitan social systems. They take people out of their ethnic um, um, isolation and put them into living relationship with people of other traditions, other cultures, other languages, and other religions. And I think that's a good thing that imperial systems do. And it never raises critically the question, what's the alternative to empire? And as I just mentioned, tragically in the 20th century, we saw what the alternative to empire is. The alternative to empire is national socialism which is the actual name of the Nazi movement. This kind of simplistic and uncritical thinking about politics, it seems to me, proceeds on a very naive assumption from the perspective of Christian theology that any alternative form of political sovereignty could emerge free from what Augustine called libido dominandi, the will to dominate, the political form of original sin. Any 
human form of government will be corrupted by the will to domination. By virtue of the fall, as Lutheran orthodoxy understood, and as Dietrich Bonhoeffer tried to retrieve and revitalize, social structures, <clears throat> social structures including the state, the so-called orders of creation persisting in a fallen world, ambiguously both protect against chaotic violence but can also be captivated by malice, which in turn transforms them into structures of injustice and oppression. In short, social structures can be demonized, but they are not the demons which capture them, just as social structures can also be sanctified, but they are not the spirit who is holy. Similarly popular today is the employment of a psychologizing rhetoric of hate understood as an irrational passion of aversion, and this put forward in place of a biblical and theological understanding of sin as malice, as the evil will of envy which fills the human soul, which is not filled by the Holy Spirit and faith. And I'll be explaining what I mean by that. But first, the prophet Amos tells us to hate what is evil and love what is good. No, nothing irrational about that. Picking up on this, the Apostle Paul says that love should be sincere by hating what is evil. Love for the good entails repudiation of what is bad, what is evil. Sinful malice is a far more subtle corruption of reason itself, not simply of the passions. For malice is a parasite corrupting love for the good, as it is represented in the Bible by the figure of Satan. In the 2016 chapter on powers and principalities, I followed the suggestion of several church fathers, especially Augustine, to understand the Gospel of John's liar and murderer from the beginning, a reference to the serpent's role in lying to Adam and Eve that they would be as God knowing good and evil, and as a result, affecting their spiritual murder, their exile from the garden. This is what Augustine said about this figure, the serpent, the liar and murderer from the beginning. It is a fallen angel of light, Lucifer, light bearer, like the early morning star. This good creature of God, this Chief among the angels, Augustine said, upon learning that the lowly earthlings had been elected the covenant partner of the Creator, was seized by vicious envy and resolved in pure malice 
to undo the election of the earthlings and bring about their destruction, their ruin. The malice of the devil's envy then provided Augustine a working idea of the motives of those spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Looking at the story in Genesis 2 and 3, Augustine saw that the cunning serpent tempts the human couple with his own ambition to be as God, deciding good and evil for himself. As Luther would later put it, sinful envy wants to be God and does not want God to be God. And on this destructive, indeed suicidal path, it wants to pull others down into the orbit of its own will to domination. <clears throat> How did Augustine come to that insight? He discovered the proud ambition motivated by envy of the God of God as the negative reflection of the humility of the true and eternal Son and his human obedience as the new Adam, this one who did not count equality with God a thing to be coveted, but became servant and obedient even to death on the cross. I'm, of course, referring to the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2. This Christological way to discover the enemy, super-individual, transhuman, powerful to corrupt both social structures and individuals, out of the incorrigible wickedness of malicious envy, is not a matter of curious speculation by Augustine, nor even of ordinary empirical observation. But he learned this from the one who broke into the strong man's house to bind him, yet not by the edge of the sword, but by his astonishing act of divine humility and his holy way of human obedience in this way to plunder his goods. His death at the devil's hands brings about the death of death and hell's destruction. Death battling death in order to be life for us who are dying. Augustine's purpose is not to come up with a speculative explanation of evil or an insight into the reality, the ontology of the devil, other than the theologically necessary and minimal affirmation that the devil is also a creature of God, not God's equal, and therefore just so entirely perverse in its wicked desire to pull all it can into the orbit of its pride's inevitable downward spiral.
knowing merely this minimal about the devil, the point for Augustine's knowledge of it is rather practically to engage in the struggle inaugurated by that one who had broken into the strong man's house and to do battle in exactly the same way, the same holy way, by wondrous acts of humility and obedience for the sake of others suffering the devil's multifaceted oppression. <clears throat> and that precisely is what the new human society of the ecclesia, the church, is to be. Freed in faith from the devil's tyranny, in love to become servants of all, the very body on the earth of the risen Lord, who came not to be served but to serve. We struggle, therefore, against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places by creating sustaining and expanding such caring communities of Christ's people, which have as such their own broadly political significance. The present reality of such new communities of a new humanity is the true subversion of demonized political sovereignty, or for that matter, equally demonic political chaos. No matter whether they take imperial or nationalist, or for that matter, democratic, socialist, or capitalist form. Yet that means equally that God who fights for us in this particular way through the cross of Christ is a problem also for us. The church in Europe and America in our corrupt and compromised existence. I want therefore now to turn to a brutal book on the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, Ephraim Radner's book titled Brutal Unity. Necessary as it is, for example, my previous explicit rejection of Luther's violent tirades against Pope, peasant, and Jew. Radner argues forcefully that it is too convenient for the church retroactively to distance itself from the actions of its own members, particularly when the evil actions were widespread and included numerous high-ranking and theologically trained leaders. Not only is this move in danger of becoming a tactic far too convenient of self-exculpation, of self-justification, it continues the habit of forming group identity by means of, and this is technical language from Radner, by means of contrastive identity markers. In plain English, a rhetoric of putting others down in order to build ourselves up. We are not Luther attacking the Jews. We are not Calvin burning Servetus at the stake. 
We are not Puritans on a witch hunt. Neither are we born-again slaveholders on the antebellum southern plantation economy, and so on and so on. We're not them. Are they not your brothers and sisters in Christ, these sinners? True as it is that we must know these sins of Christians, Bradner argues, we must also know them as our own sin, since the theological reality of the church is that for good or for ill, we belong to one another. Through time and across space, brutal though this unity is, I mean, for myself, for example, I cannot only claim Luther's good theology without also taking responsibility for his evil theology. And if I fail to do the latter, I simply remain complicit in the evil and sublimely, sovereignly ignorant or indifferent to it. Otherwise, as we see in much of my denomination, offended by the historical sins of Christians, even the great sins of great Christians like Luther, we simply expel these others, cancel them, rhetorically, as the enemy, the heretic, or the false Christian, without realizing our own complicity in their sin on account of the solidarity we have with them in Christ. Oh, how righteous we can feel about ourselves when we loudly and abrasively denounce the fundamentalists or the liberals, the Protestants or the Catholics, the dippers or the dunkers, the dead formalism or the holy ruling. According to Radin, contrastive identity stratagems attempt to absolve the church by the mechanism of division from the sinners or the heretics. Such denunciation sanctified as divine prophetic judgment, as holy invective. That's exactly how Luther rationalized his own rhetorical violence. Ratner, himself of Jewish descent, excavates the medieval conflation of Jew with heretic at the Western font of Christian deployment of contrastive identity markers, which incentivizes the creation and nurture of racist stereotyping to enhance the self-perception of one's own group. As I mentioned, we know today painfully and inescapably how our Martin Luther succumbed to this dynamic. We can and must see in the church's relationship with the Jews that as, construct, as this contrastive identity mechanism continued to work across the centuries, it served cumulatively to dehumanize the Jews, therefore making their division necessary and violence against them um, conceivable, even a holy necessity. This mechanism played a facilitating role in the Holocaust. It is a fact 
that Nazi religionists regarded the excision of the Jews from the body politic of the German people on the secular medical analogy of removing a cancerous tumor. And yet they bless the dirty work as a holy task on behalf of life and health. Another escape attempt that Radner cuts off is the requirement of fulsome doctrinal agreement as the basis of fellowship. Radner challenges the tacit assumption that unity and peace are achieved by agreement accomplished by the sharing of information in formal statements or documents. But knowledge as the basis for a change of mind or consensus among others who are disagreeing is very difficult to specify. It is difficult enough for one person to know their own understanding of a topic and harder still to understand another person's understanding of the same topic. Now just imagine for a minute if we really seriously required communicants to understand the doctrine of the real presence. How many would be able to commune? The force of doctrinal agreement, as in the church councils, Radner argues, which produced the ecumenical creeds, is actually governed by social rules and, he is hastens to point out, historically by state coercion. The church made the rules, but the empire enforced them. Agreements are in fact not about achieved unanimity in theological opinion, but rather about creating a church culture in which disagreement can be managed wholesomely, even productively. Complicated doctrinal agreements are more accurately described as statements that multiple factions within a public church can live with, rather than expressing a full-fledged meeting of minds. So being church, that is to say, owning not only the sins of others, but also the disagreements with others, is not heaven on earth. But it is also not the sacred violence of contrastive identity mechanisms. Thus, Radner summons us who follow Christ in his train to take the violence of others upon ourselves in the self-sacrifice of love. In Christ we know it is better to suffer evil than to do evil so as not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Perhaps the most provocative articulation of such brutal ecclesiology as he recommends is Radner's idea of the sacrifice of conscience. What he means by this, however, needs some very precise explanation, more than he provides. Here's the backstory. In modern political liberalism, conscience is seen as the right to a private opinion, sacrosanct, 
a private or secret opinion, known only to a solitary individual in their heart of hearts. And as we hear to this day, that's just how I feel. That's just what I think. Leave me alone. End of discussion. Judged theologically, dear friends, this is a frightful decline from conscience captive to the word of God and publicly confessed at the risk of life itself before emperor and pope with the willingness to suffer martyrdom on its account. What a fall from the diet of worms to the modern liberal idea of conscience as the right to a private opinion, leave me alone, don't trouble me. The modern liberal misconception of conscience elevates individual opinion to a privileged, indeed sacrosanct status, crowning the formation of the romantic expressive individualist self. This sense of sovereign selfhood in the name of private conscience cannot but dissolve all bonds of commonality because it protects unfounded opinion making it invulnerable to criticism. This solitary conception of conscience, just like the privatized religion that it reflects, however, can be deployed very rapidly to sanction all too public violence. Radner cites Pascal, quote, no one does evil so fully and happily as one done for the sake of conscience." Close quote. Conscience, disconnected and unaccountable to community and social forms of meaning-making, can easily be co-opted by social anxiety, eventually bearing fruit in group violence. As the lonely individual finds a cause greater than him or herself in some collective, of the conscientiously like-minded. And then they go on a pogrom. Retrieval of a better view of conscience demands recognition, Radner argues, of its social and material nature. That is, in the inescapable process of learning in the world, which reveals the self in relation to others. In other words, conscience is learned in the laboratory of life. Just so, such a conception of the social and historical nature of consciousness in the formation of conscience allows it also to be formed by the gospel confrontation with the love of Christ, which bids us to lay down our lives, to sacrifice our consciences as our private opinions, so that we can find them again regarding ourselves, the world, and Christ, no longer according to the flesh, but now according to the spirit. As Christians, our conscience is constantly being relearned and restlessly reordered in the life in Christ as membership in the body of Christ. This way of learning as disciples of Jesus entails the sacrifice of our former lives along with their privileged but private consciences 
their self-understandings are laid down in favor of our God-given justification, our new vocations, and our common identity in Christ. Privileged private consciousness in the false security of our own unfounded opinion is willingly sacrificed now for the sake of conscience bound to the word of God spoken in the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. Indeed, throughout our Christian lives, we have the Pauline experience where we are by life experience struck blind and the scales later falling from our eyes and we see again, but as in Paul's case, there is real pain and uncertainty involved in our opinion of ourselves when our opinion of ourselves and our world is so sacrificed. So connecting back to the end of the first lecture, this is the real problem of God again. Our suffering of divine violence for the sake ultimately of divine healing. The holy and divine violence of the Lord who fights for us truly by first fighting against us. The community of the church is that of sinners. Those who do the dividing by building themselves up at the expense of tearing others down. A community of sinners that nevertheless has been taken hold of by Christ who owns us, sins and all, real, not fictitious sin. You know this is at the heart of Luther's doctrine of justification, what he called the joyful exchange. He often depicted Christ as saying to the soul, give me your sin and take my righteousness. Surrender your sin to receive my mercy. So yes, the sin is real, brutally real, real in the brutal unity of the church. But so is Christ real, really taking hold of us according to the joyful exchange. Give me your sin and take my righteousness. Therefore, the real existing church in which we live is not a countercultural colony of the perfected. And ecclesial unity is not a sublime state of like-mindedness, perfectly cleansed of division. It is rather the brutal unity of real love, which is born in division and bound to division. That's what Radner says. The church is both unified and divided, just as a Christian is both saint and sinner. This view of the church situates grace and the forgiveness of sins in the messy, contradictory, and often violent lives of real people. And in so doing brings the cross to bear on the real church in which we live.
this realistic portrait serves to remind us that the church is continually penitent. As Augustine said, in this life our righteousness for the most part consists in the forgiveness of sins. And the human righteousness that takes form in us together in the church is in our humble, contrite prayer of the publican. God have mercy on me, a sinner. <clears throat> this is the true people of God, wrote Luther in the early Romans commentary, who continually brings the judgment of the cross to bear, to bear not on the other guy, but upon themselves. It is the first of his famous 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, do penance, he meant for the entire life of the Christian to be one of repentance. See, repentance is, repentance is the suffering of God. Our suffering of God when in so far as we have been knocked off of our high horse by the God who suffered for us arrogant creatures, who in envy do not want God to be God and want to be God instead. So this I submit in the end is the true meaning of the divine violence of the scriptures, not literal but spiritual, and therefore far more real than shallow literalisms can imagine. Never then our fighting for God, but the battle of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is holy, to break through to us and in us, convicting the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Never to be clumsily identified with any human violence, but the mysterious alien work of God that he does for the sake of his proper work, which is not only the forgiveness of our very real guilt for violence, but our deliverance from its thrall, our deliverance from its power. In conclusion, divine violence is the Spirit's interpretation of our human experience. And to be sure, this is subject to important qualifications. If it is not to be misunderstood as some sanctification of demonic hegemonies. As Simeon Zal has put it, there really are quite significant theological differences between the judgment of God and the judgment of our boss our spouse or our parents and these in turn will have effects on how we experience our experience to be certain the judgment of god disrupting us may be hidden in with and under human and historical events it is christian wisdom to discern the difference so that the violence of God always gives way to the peace of God. That is why the purpose clause is so important. God makes us sinners 
in order to make us righteous. God kills in order to make alive. This is absolutely crucial for the proper deployment of the law gospel hermeneutic of experience. As all puts it, it is only in the spirit that the revelation of sinfulness as that malicious envy at work in our souls is put into its proper context of surpassing divine love as an instrument then of compassionate diagnosis that is always ordered to an infinite grace. Thank you for your attention.